On Jacobin Radio today, we talk to Christian Parenti, now teaching in the economics program at John Jay College, about the catastrophic effects of climate change already upon us. Christian has written suggestively in Jacobin about what the near future will look like if we fail to act. But he says that technological solutions already exist, that the state will have to step up, and that brings up the question of political power and political will. We'll touch on these issues and more in looking at the climate catastrophes from Harvey to Irma, from Katrina to Houston, to the fires that are raging around the globe. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Christian Parenti join us. We're going to be discussing what some may want to call the eco-pocalypse or apocalyptic ecological crises right now. If you're looking and if you know, we are in the midst of hurricanes and floods and fires and earthquakes now in Mexico. And what does it all mean? Christian Parenti is a professor in the economics program at John Jay College. And his latest book is The Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. And he has spent a long time now exploring climate change and its violence as it interacts with neoliberalism and other things. He's written three previous books, Lockdown America, Police and Prisons, and The Soft Cage Surveillance in America, and The Freedom Shadows and Hallucinations in Occupied Iraq. And as you can tell by this intro, Christian's interests may seem to have been eclectic, but they follow a thread. And we'll get him to talk about that. And he was embedded in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's been all over the world. He was in Katrina after the flood there. And so we're going to begin with all of that. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Christian Parenti. Thank you very much for having me on. I should also let the listeners know before we begin that you have a series of spectacular articles. And we start with If We Fail, that appeared, I think, August 29th on jacobinmag.com. But there's also several others, including one on the role of the state in new politics. There is dissent from, I think, summer 2013. And if you just Google Christian Parenti or go to www.christianparenti.com, but you will find these articles and you will be informed. So let's just begin with what's going on. I just got back from Montana. You could not see the big sky country. All you could see was smoke everywhere, and it's the largest forest fires ever in Montana, and that's after many, many years of forest fires. This is the worst summer. Then, of course, we've had Houston flooded with Hurricane Harvey, and we have Hurricane Irma now pounding and destroying and pummeling most of uh, the Caribbean and destroying parts of Puerto Rico as well, and now scheduled for landfall in Florida today. So if we put all of those things together... Let's just start there with what's going on. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible moment, and it is one that has been predicted by climate scientists using the various, like around 14 major computer models that put in all of the best climate science and sort of try and figure out the relationship of the dynamics and and how the system, the climate system as a whole, will respond. And for over 30 years these models have been more 
often correct and wrong, and, and they have predicted more intense storms and more frequent storms, and these patterns are playing out. And so there may well be another 10-year respite between hurricanes after this, but um, Irma is the most powerful storm ever recorded in the Caribbean. So it fits the pattern that's been predicted, and now we're going to see what the social consequences of this are and what the political economic consequences of this are. Houston is the fourth largest city in the country. Miami's, I don't know what size, but it's pretty large. It's huge. So if both of these are heavily inundated, you know, that's going to be a huge bill. What will the response be? Is our society going to say, well, the market can figure all this out, which... Uh, I don't think it can. Well, that's clearly where I want to go. But before we get into that, you have in your article identified the coastal cities as the front line of the climate change crisis. And you, we could go over it globally, but we can just maybe begin in this part talking about what it is that's changed to put these cities in such danger. And then maybe you could explain it even in terms of the rising sea level and what is causing the, the climate to heat up the waters and how it works. Yeah, well, there's been steadily rising sea levels, and they're predicted to to rise considerably more and faster. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which collates all of the best climate science and vets it and presents it for policymakers, predicts a minimum of a three-foot global average sea level rise by the end of this century and possibly up to over six feet. But what's really dangerous is not the incremental rise in sea levels, but what the higher sea levels do to storm surges when these now more powerful storms arrive. And what they do is they inundate infrastructure. And that is already causing problems here in New York. It will no doubt cause problems in Houston. It caused problems in New Orleans. And and if if Miami is in fact hit, it'll cause problems there. So... And is there a relationship, can I just ask you, and I interrupted your question, but is there a relationship between these gigantic new storms and the fires as well, or are they separate effects yeah, of the no, same I mean, thing? They're all, they're all, yeah, they're all part and parcel of the same patterns of a warming planet. And the water in the Caribbean and the Atlantic is warmer, and so then that means there's more energy in the sea, in the atmosphere, there's more evaporation. There's actually more moisture in the atmosphere. Hotter land temperatures are leading to drier forests. Warmer temperatures are also leading to the advance of parasites, particularly certain types of beetles that are destroying evergreen trees in the west and, and on, in the east. And then that preps forests for major fires. So all of these catastrophes are linked. They're not, they don't all have the, the same immediate causes, but the more general cause is the warming of the atmosphere due to accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which allow the heat from the sun in, but then prevent a portion of it from radiating back out to space, thus making the planet hotter and hotter. So that is how they're linked. Global warming caused by human burning of fossil fuels. And we're going to get to that and to even some of the solutions later on in this interview, but I want to just get 
Christian uh, Parenti, you to lay out even more of this. So we can understand the superstorms that have made for the floods in Houston and previously in New Orleans and even in New York and now with Irma in Florida because of what you said, rising temperatures. But you also write in your article in Jacobin that there's something about the construction or design of the coastal cities that leaves them incredibly vulnerable, both for their construction and their environment. So maybe we could just go through that and look at it in terms of, say, New Orleans, New York, and Houston. Well, they're built at sea level. That's the main problem, and they, and they have no defenses. They don't have natural bioshields like wetlands. They don't have seawalls, which, you know, can also be a problem if, if they're if the seawall is overrun by the sea, then you just got you're trapping a flood. But the natural defenses that would break storm surges have been eroded, and artificial defenses defenses are not being built. And part of what that is all about is that there various different parties are hostage to local property values. So even a conscientious mayor who would like to raise money to invest in building adaptive defenses for their city runs the risk of undermining their own tax base if they announce what they're doing. If they say, hey, folks, sea levels are rising. We need to build defenses. That's essentially an advertisement for a massive evacuation and write down of real estate values. And these cities need high property values to raise taxes to deal with these problems. So there's a strange kind of, you know, denial underway. And I think and you even homeowners participate in it as well. I mean, people don't want to advertise the fact that they live in vulnerable property. They want to deny that for obvious reasons. They want to go on with their daily lives. They don't want this to be true. But also, I mean, that's that's not how you sell a property. Like, hey, I got to get rid of this because it's going to be worthless in twenty years. <laughs> so there's that dynamic. And but can I just add, add to one thing here that you mentioned in your article too that there's this crazy underground si- infrastructure. Right. That what no. Yeah. no, well, yeah. I was actually going to say that, you know, you had insane responses from property owners in New Jersey and New York against what it will look like for their property values, not just oh, yeah. advertising it. So, And here's where you would presume that there would be some sort of governmental response, as there is in, say, the Netherlands and elsewhere, and even on a different level, say, in Mexico City, where there are loudspeakers in every neighborhood with updates and alerts for earthquake preparedness. Whereas here, it seems to be left to individuals and to individual property owners as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's, um, yeah, keep going. So, but, yeah, but yeah, one of the problems is, you know, a lot of cities have this underground infrastructure. So there's the problem of direct damage to buildings and stuff like that. But then there's the corrosion that can set into all of these underground electrical wires and pipelines. And so we have that problem from Superstorm Sandy, which was, not a hurricane anymore. It was a, a tropical storm when it landed, and yet it flooded parts of the subway. And amazingly, in defense of the public sector, they had most of the subway up and running within days. Hmm. Um, but the salt water is very corrosive, and it penetrated into both electrical gear and into the concrete. And so one of the main tunnels linking Brooklyn to Manhattan is going to be closed for a year to be repaired. And, I mean, that alone is going to cause incredible chaos in terms of commuting. So that's one of the major problems that we face is that what happens when more and more of these cities get inundated and then as time goes on, it becomes clear that the process of rebuilding is very expensive, very timely, 
not going to happen that easily. You'll have a crisis of confidence in the property values. And I think we'll see as one of the early symptoms of climate change, a kind of new urban crisis. And it's the Rust Belt. We'll have like a new mold belt mm. on the coast. And and just what seems unthinkable now about New York, right? 10% of U.S. GDP is the New York City metropolitan area. How could this ever be abandoned? Well, I mean, once upon a time, people would have felt that way about Detroit. It was this booming, prosperous, huge city. It was never going to become depopulated. But in fact, it did for different reasons. I want to go from New York to Houston, though, because it's part of the same story you say, and many people have written about now, that the vulnerability in Houston to storms and floods had long been known. There was a series of investigative articles in the Houston Chronicle, the newspaper. And so even though these things are predicted, I think you're kind of leading toward the political problems about actually being able to do anything given our system. And what do you think is the case? Who knew and when did they know it and why couldn't they do something? Or did they? They knew. The Obama administration actually tried to impose tighter regulations on the chemical industry and petroleum industry in Houston. They were defeated in court. And there was just too much money to be made in developing those floodplains in Houston. And so there was Again, a kind of confluence, an open conspiracy of interests to operate for the short term. And thus, all these, these neighborhoods are built in areas that we knew were going to flood. Another thing is that uh, austerity has really undermined the production of public knowledge. So we don't have adequate flood maps. These kinds of things have not been updated. A guy I know who's a water engineer told me that the most current data for 72-hour rainfall patterns for Houston is from 1964. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and they were about to publish NOAA's Rainfall Atlas number 14, and this is his bread and butter, so I defer to him, but he says it's totally wrong. Like, you know, they're probably not going to publish this. So there's also the lack of basic research because we have this far-right, increasingly far-right, GOP that's opposed to science. So even the basic research isn't allowed. An extreme and almost comical example of that was in North Carolina, where a group called NC22 for the 22 coastal counties successfully lobbied and sued and made it illegal to consider sea level rises in zoning decisions. So there you have it in a nutshell. There are short-term interests. They have too much to gain continuing on with business as usual, and so they fight tooth and nail to prevent any kind of legislation, any kind of production of knowledge that would be the basis for a policy transformation, and thus we have, no pun intended, but the perfect storm in one city after another. And, and we have today, I mean, we know that Pruitt is in charge of the Yeah. And he's saying that CC climate change has to be redacted. He's trying to create a group of Mm -hmm. professors who will put out denials of everything that, what is it, 99.9% of scientists agree on. So it's more of the same. And you started to go into, Christian Parenti, the interests that are opposed for economic reasons to do anything about it. And I think you also hit the nail on the head when you talked about the short-termism. But there's also the other side of it, too. I mean, 
there must be tremendous pressure from voters in these very regions who stand to lose so much. So this might make us, I think, go... Well, there might be. I don't think there is as of yet. I think that homeowners and voters in these areas, that might change with this week, but do not see themselves as vulnerable. So, But Um, but you're talking about the forces who are really in favor of doing nothing. I was trying to see if there were any forces in favor of doing something and and the obstacles that I guess they would uh, come up with. Yeah, currently, I don't think those forces are very developed. But this is what I think very well could happen, is that if this mold zone, this new coastal ghetto happens because of moldering, rotting infrastructure, panic around property, real estate values, et cetera, et cetera, there could be constituencies that develop that pressure on the issue of climate change, not on the question of mitigation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but, but entering it in the, on the question of adaptation. What are you going to do to rebuild our city? What are you going to do to relocate us? There are 100,000 houses that are near totally destroyed in Houston. 85% of them don't have flood insurance. So either the federal government, which is populated by these free marketeers who are committed to defending the market, either they're going to act like socialists and give lots of, quote-unquote, free stuff to people, or they won't, and they will screw over all these people. And in that case, they could create the beginning of a kind of enraged constituency that starts demanding government action. If that happens, then very interesting things could happen. I mean, I think there's one interesting thing that happens in these moments of the storms is that the ideological structures of everyday life are are blown apart, right? When it's sunny out, we're told that the market is omnipotent and omniscient and that people are naturally selfish and that if government gets out of the way, self-interest and the market take care of everything. During a moment of storm, all of that goes out the window and altruism and self-sacrifice and solidarity and redistribution, not called as such, it's called aid, it's called emergency support, becomes not only tolerated, but celebrated. And so you can imagine how those ruptures could expand, especially if there were left movements that pressed into these moments of crisis and aid for further and a continued decommodification. That's what that emergency response is. It's essentially like a moment of decommodification. You don't have to pay for the service, i.e. the commodity of getting on one of these rescue boats. It's just done, right? And it's like, for a moment, the rules of capitalism are suspended. And so there's a way in which we could possibly push that out. Okay, so there's large populations of people who need assistance, who are worthy of this. Well, for how long? And why can't that population be expanded a little further? And, And maybe there should be other forms of assistance. And you can see how it's the slippery slope to social democracy. Can I just, you know, just I'd love to just come in right here because, of course, during World War One and World War Two, when the government stepped in to plan what were production priorities, they called it wartime socialism. And what you're really bringing about, Christian Parenti, is the discussion of a, say, eco-socialism or social democracy where other forces demand that the market take a back seat to this other politics. And, and many people around the world looked at the U.S. response to Katrina and said, well, why didn't the government just 
commandeer Amtrak cruise ships, buses, cars? You know, why was it left to individuals, as we're seeing with Irma, to find a way for poor people to get out of town, which is not so easy. Mm-hmm. But so we're moving into the politics. And before we get to, like, ultimate sort of solutions, what we've seen so far is that even, say, Obama, who wanted to do something with the Paris Climate Accords, couldn't get anything with teeth at all. And that's usually the case. And you've laid out very well. Well, he known. I wouldn't I don't think he tried very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're back in the politics. No, he had ample opportunity to do a lot. And the key thing is that he inherited the enabling legislation to start imposing a de facto carbon tax on the U.S. economy. Right. And that enabling legislation was basically the Clean Air Act of 1970, amended or changed by a lawsuit called Massachusetts versus EPA, which took 10 years to go through the courts. And in 2007, the Supreme Court ruled that the EPA must, not can if it wants to, must regulate greenhouse gas emissions in accordance with the best science, which basically means that if this law were implemented, and the Bush administration refused to implement it, the Obama administration said they would implement it, only did two small tailoring laws, two small implementations that were politically easy because they were essentially ratifying things that had already been done. They, or they made rules for new coal-fired power plants that were so strict that no one is ever going to build a new coal-fired power plant in the United States. Yeah. But that doesn't matter because of the fracking revolution Existing coal-fired power plants are even, as we speak, being switched over to natural gas. So, so no, no group of investors are going to invest okay, so, in a new coal plant. And, well, you, and the other thing was about automobiles. But he dragged his feet for eight years on applying the Clean Air Act to greenhouse gas emissions. And the environmental movement essentially enabled that by going off on a wild goose chase of divesting from fossil fuels, attacking the companies mm. directly or attacking them indirectly through university endowments rather than pressuring the government saying, hey, impose the law, follow <laughs> the law, make these companies pay very high fines if they burn fossil fuels. That's the same as the carbon tax. If you raise the cost of dirty energy, that makes clean energy and clean technology much more competitive. It shifts, it just naturally drives private investment towards building out a clean energy infrastructure. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm speaking with Christian Parenti. So, Christian, you've just laid out the case of the cynicism, let's say, of the political class, and that goes for the Democrats as well as the Republicans as well as, you know, the economic interests. And I think you've also said that, you know, the short-termism, that in a sense capitalism has to be saved from itself. But you were starting to get into, you know, a case for a revival of Keynesianism and public spending in the wake of these large disasters that are affecting us right this moment. So can you explain what you mean by that, and how does it affect our understanding of what the state can do? Because in your other books, you talk about surveillance and the repressive apparatus of the police, and we certainly mm-hmm. saw that, you know, and even in your book on the Tropic of Chaos and that first response. So it's a large question, but I'd like to get you to yeah. start it. So, I mean, my focus on the state has given me an appreciation for the power of the state. And the, the book I'm currently finishing for Verso is going to publish it, is about the deep origins, actually, of kind of American developmentalism, what I've called in some of these articles that you mentioned, the shadow socialism at the heart of American capitalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, capitalism is born and continues to exist because of constant subsidies to the private sector from the public sector. Mariana Mazzucuto wrote an excellent book called The Entrepreneurial State, 
And one example she gives is this iPhone. It has 12 different kinds of government-funded, government-produced technology at the basis of it. We don't acknowledge this. So what could happen is that the government could use all of the tools it has been using since the beginning to direct the economy in the correct direction. And so these would be one, this de facto carbon tax, but also the government is a major consumer of energy. It should immediately start shifting over to buying clean energy. The government has a 450 or so 100,000 office buildings. That's just the federal government, never mind state governments. They could all be retrofitted and lower their energy consumption enormously. Some of them could possibly even become net energy contributors to the grid. If the government did that, it would help create markets for and economies of scale for the clean tech sector, which really, it doesn't need investment so much, and it doesn't need some sort of breakthrough. What it needs at this point is demand to scale it up. So the government could buy clean energy. It could buy electric vehicles. It could retrofit its buildings. If it did that, that would drive this transition. And this is, in fact, how aviation came online, how computers came online. Much of modern technology was driven either directly through government consumption or through consumption and production in the private sector that was subsidized by the government, through, unfortunately, often through warfare. But, you know, this climate change is is the kind of crisis that, for better or for worse, calls forth the state. And so I think the state is coming back, and it's not a question of will the state come back, but rather what form will it take? Will the state come back as more repression, or will, will the state come back as a kind of expansion of a sort of storm socialism, an acceptance <laughs> in the name of emergency of uh, expanding the economic role of government, expanding the public sector. But in this, you know, we've had this debate before in other circumstances where some people want to see the state as their protection and also job creation in terms of infrastructure and everything else and others who just see it in terms of repression. And what you're saying is extremely important. So I want to, you know, hear a little bit more about how this revival comes about and how we can get to the place where it isn't about repression, but it is about, let's call it protection, or what did you just call right. it, some well, storm social? You're asking, you're asking a question implicitly about social movements. I mean, it has, to, it has to be pushed by social movements, and I don't know what it will take to revive social movements. I don't have an answer for that part, but what, what I have been working on is trying to make more concrete the policy path towards a real solution to climate change in the near term. I say this as a socialist. It's not enough to say, well, we get rid of capitalism, we have socialism, <laughs> and then the economy is decarbonized. Because one, that, that could be way in the future, and we have to start decarbonizing it now. And two, socialism has a long tradition, I mean, a long history of, of achieving many social gains, but not addressing the environmental questions. So we have to you know, start talking now specifically about what kinds of policies are these transition policies, what kinds of technologies, what should be subsidized, what shouldn't. So well, there's a whole list. I mean, I could bore yes, you. Yes, no, no, don't. About, you know. Please do, because in your article you actually have the final section as solutions, and you say that don't give in to cynicism because there is hope we can turn this around. And that, So let's hear what you have to say on that. Okay, so there is all of the technology we need. It's not like 
commercial scale solar hasn't been invented, wind power, all that technology exists. It just has to be scaled up. We have an electrical grid. We have electric vehicles. We have the enabling legislation that we need. It would be nice to have better legislation, but we have the enabling legislation for a carbon tax, as I was saying earlier. And there's also enormous amounts of money. There is the public sector, right? There's the, the military budget that in the name of emergency could be increasingly steered toward domestic recovery efforts and rebuilding and adaptation. And there is also the consumption of the government, right? The government vehicles should all be made electric. Its buildings should be retrofitted, et cetera, et cetera. This would do enormous amount. If the government did that, that would then draw in the enormous amounts of liquid capital that corporate America is sitting on, mm. waiting for new outlets of investment. Since the Federal Reserve started keeping records on this, and I think it was like around 56, the sum of money has never been higher. It's, it's over $2 trillion now. This is money that corporate firms... Not what they're giving out as stock dividends or bonuses, but what's retained by the firms, usually parked in low-yield, safe, short-term government securities. And they're waiting for the next big thing. What, what are we supposed to invest in? And so this is a symptom of overaccumulation, right? This is capitalism's perennial problem that it produces too much wealth, you know, as, as Marx says in the, in the manifesto, too much civilization. And, and then everywhere suddenly this contradiction, seeming famine, because there are these economic crashes. So overaccumulation, too much liquid capital in the hands of capitalists without enough profitable investments leads to one bubble after another. That's what drove up the, the right. tech bubble of the late 90s. It drove up the housing bubble. And we're in another ago. housing bubble so all now. That, yeah, all of that money could be directly harnessed into this process of transition, either through in inducements by the government leading the way and creating markets, and also through threats, saying, you know, if you speculate on um, financial assets, we're raising the taxes on that. If you invest in these designated transition sectors, we, we lower your taxes, right? There's, There's a nothing lot. but tons of money. It's not like this can't be paid for. So those are all the material objectives components that we need. The only thing that's missing is the political will and a kind of strategy. And I think a crucial problem in this is the American left's imagination around government and around the state. And it has to do with the tyranny of what Bastos and Carl called anarcho-liberalism, right? right. Uh, this idea that small is beautiful, that government really is bad, and that what we want is uh, not a free market libertarian future, but a kind of small localista future. And that's not going to do it in the face of this bigger crisis and in dealing with this complex and modern and huge an economy. So we have to start articulating, and we are, sorry, I, mean, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders' campaign was really a great leap forward in that regard. It's like, government is not, not just the problem, as a lot of leftists have thought until recently. They realize, no, wait a minute, this is, this is possible. And the other thing around that kind of politics is that socialism, which is often invoked, particularly in this day and age, a lot of young democratic socialists emerging. Socialism can't be this thing in the future. Socialism has to be the solution to immediate problems, pragmatic solutions, like forgiving student debt, free tuition, free health care, right? Like, not in the future, right now. All these kinds of pragmatic responses to people's everyday needs, then that will help 
ironically, help revive the capitalist economy. And I'm, gonna, uh, I'm not saying this is an advocate of capitalism, but that's a, a fact. I think, I think you put it very well before, Christian Parenti, that capitalism has to be saved from itself. And I want to direct the listeners, because we've run out of time, to getting some of your articles, Rethinking the State, that appeared in New Politics, If We Fail, that appears in Jacobin, and the one that appeared in Dissent, I've forgotten the title of it, I don't have it in front of me. A Radical Approach to Climate Change. Radical approach to climate change, but there are many more. And we didn't even get to the technology now, for example, that you say that there is now, there is a fix for uh, carbon and uh, carbon stripping and turning it into limestone. This is a proven technology. This is not a theory. It's a proven technology, but the market's never going to be able to get it to scale. It has to be like national security and roads, it has to be done by the public sector. Okay, well, we're going to have to end it there, and I, I suppose the new slogan should be from, from the mold belt to storm socialism and beyond. And I got all that yes. from what you were just saying, Christian Parenti. Congratulations on your work. We look forward to your new book. The last one was Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. Christian Parenti, thank you so much for joining us here on Jacobin Radio. Thank you very much, Susie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Jacobin Radio.